The human spirit is unconquerable. We are individuals and we are sovereign, born with unlimited potential, gifted from our creator. Our mission is to break free from the systems that bind us. I volunteer as tribute. We strive for peace and prosperity and overcome all challenges, roadblocks, and obstacles. We are empowered because we think for ourselves and we act for ourselves. We are self-reliant and independent, but guided by the wisdom of those who share our values. What possible difference can I make? There is no government, no ruler, nor ideas that are able to stop us. We are driven to succeed because we seek political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. It's all for nothing if you don't have freedom. This is Mike Corbell, and you are listening to The Invictus Mind. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Invictus Mind. This is your host, Mike Corbell. The coronavirus continues scaring and debilitating people into quite frankly absurd behaviors. And because I'm not a professional, in this day and age, nobody will give you the time of day to listen to you unless you are some type of expert. So today, I found someone who I asked to share some thoughts with me. In this episode, we are going to take a look at some real and truthful ways that human beings can prevent illness, potentially fight off getting a virus, but also we're going to go take a look at the backstory as we take a deeper dive into the pharmaceutical industry itself and how the FDA regulates the drugs that come to the market. But before that, I wanted to say thank you again to my listeners. If you like this show, please share it with three of your friends and go ahead and check me out on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Also, I've started my Invictus Mind newsletter. I wanted to give each one of you listeners an opportunity to dive further inside my mind where I can continue to inform you some of the tools and tricks I've learned over the course of my career to become independent. In this newsletter, you'll receive the show notes that you may have wanted from previous episodes that you missed, also updates of some of the cool companies I've been working with. Companies like the Tuttle Twins, the Tom Woods Liberty University, the Ron Paul Homeschooling Program, and much more. To get access to the Invictus Mind newsletter, just pick up your phone and text the word Invictus, I-N-V-I-C-T-U-S, to 33777. Once again, that word is Invictus to 33777 to join the group. I'm looking forward to having the premier email newsletter for liberty activists, entrepreneurs, and independently-minded thinkers who wish to build their skill set and become unconquerable. Finally, if you want to check out any of the videos of these recordings but do not want to subscribe to the newsletter, you can support me by checking out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Michael underscore Corbell. And there, throw me a couple of dollars that I can use for additional marketing. My daughter and wife would really appreciate that as well. Okay then, without any further ado, let's get started. Well, hello everyone. I'm very excited to have my guest on today. She is an extremely accomplished woman with an impressive resume. Her professional story begins with her earning a Bachelor's of Science in Biochemistry along with a PhD in Biophysics from Michigan State University. Soon following that, she joined the Department of Surgery at the St. Louis University eventually leaving to accept a position with Upjohn Company as a research scientist involved in developing new therapies for a variety of diseases, including liver cirrhosis and AIDS. From 2003 to 2006, she became the adjunct professor of biology at the University of North Carolina, where she served with the Center for Applied and Professional Ethics, 
Her work in studying ethics and pharmaceutical regulations led her to become an author of a few books, including the international bestseller, Healing Our World. Over the course of her career, she has been profiled in American Men and Women of Science, put out by Princeton University, as well as a who's who in science and technology. She has made guest appearances on the Larry King Radio Show, as well as on the Morton Downey Jr. Show. I'd like to welcome and introduce Dr. Mary Ruert. How are you doing today, Mary? I'm good. Thanks, Michael. It's good to be here. Great. Mary, I intentionally left out some of your uh, history and your career because I wanted to speak to you more in person and give you the opportunity to tell me your story. I wanted to share first where I first came up with your name. Okay. So, back in 2014, I had just joined the Libertarian Party. I, uh, I heard about Dr. Ron Paul from the election, of course, in 2012. I was a late bloomer. Some people heard about him beforehand, but I, I came aware of his name in 2012. And at that time, I had only read Atlas Shrugged, so I was familiar with the name Ayn Rand. So Dr. Paul and Ayn Rand. But as I made friends in the Libertarian Party, I actually met a fellow who told me that I needed to read more books. And I remember one of the books that he showed me was your book, Dr. Mary Ruwert and Healing a Nation. I, I heard your name before I heard the name Rothbard and Mises and everything else. <laughs> I thought I'd start by having you tell me a little bit about your story. Uh, fill in any blanks that I left out about your career and, 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 and your involvement with uh, activism with the Libertarian Party. Sure. Well, you know, you mentioned Atlas Shrugged. I read it in college and was immediately, well, I guess it immediately might be a little strong, but <laughs> in, in a short while, you know, basically was a libertarian. Uh, of course, back then that word hadn't been too popular. So, you know, but it wasn't really until I got my first really big job at Upjohn that I actually found the Libertarian Party. I had I had joined via mail, but never heard back. So <laughs> it, it took me until basically the the mid uh, the mid seventies, uh, early eighties to really get active. Since then, I've just been you know I I just kind of got thrown in situations where I was really uh, given many opportunities to make an impact and and that was really great so i've been a presidential um candidate i haven't been the nominee but i've vied for that position and of course i've i've actually run for so many libertarian positions that i i can't remember how many times i've run i've served on the libertarian national committee which is the governing board of the libertarian party three times so but most people know me because of healing our world Okay. And, and that, was, that was a kind of a different way of looking at things. You know, Atlas Shrugged, you might remember, Ayn Rand really was emphasizing the, uh, I would guess I would say, maybe the mechanics of libertarianism, the non-aggression principle, if you will. And not talking about things that liberals would talk about or Christians or environmentalists. So I had been in all of those areas at one time or another. So I was able to put healing our world together in a way that really appealed to those groups and the pragmatists. What I found, and I didn't know until I started writing the book, is that every aspect of, of liberty or libertarianism, depending on how you want to phrase it, has been tried somewhere in the world at some time. So the current version of Healing Our World has over a thousand references of how liberty works in the real world. And of course, that's very important because if it doesn't work in the real world, why would we bother? Right. That's what most people say about any philosophy. Right? It works good on paper, but if it doesn't actually work, then what good is the paper? 
<laughs> Mary, I, w I wanted to spend just a few minutes talking a little bit about your career. Uh, I'm not strictly a libertarian show, although I do talk about it a lot. It's a, it's a very high value for myself and I'm sure many of the listeners here. But mm -hmm. the, the name of my show is The Invictus Mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, what that means is that I like to talk to people who have successful careers and who have a mindset of being unconquerable. And I think some, somebody as successful as you are with your, with your background, I think you demonstrated that uh, very well over the years. You mentioned a little bit about how you were, uh, you were going to school and, uh, that's when you, and then you worked at Upjohn's Research Center. Is that, I, I'm not familiar with the name of that company. Well, yeah, it's, it's not in existence anymore, but it was very big in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and actually the world. It was, it was a mid-sized company, but it had a really good reputation. I was very fortunate. It was a very ethical company. I was, you know, I was never called upon to do something that, that wouldn't, um, wouldn't sit well with my conscience. Let's put it that way. Okay. And you definitely had an interest in, in the ethics of the, uh, of the healthcare industry, and you wrote a lot of, you wrote your books about that, obviously. When, uh, when, you worked, when you went to uh, um, Michigan State University, you, you have a, bio, a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and biophysics. What, what were you hoping to set out to be when you got that? That's what really gave the FDA its power. And, and Upjohn fought that, and many pharmaceutical companies did, not just Upjohn, but in a really pivotal case, um, the FDA really was challenged about that much power and was, um, you know, was basically, I don't want to say brought to its knees because it wasn't. I mean, it, just the opposite happened. So that was, that was unfortunate that that legislation was allowed to continue. Mm. And uh, you, uh, you went on to become a, uh, a associate professor of biology at the University of North Carolina, correct? That's right, yes. My husband at the time was doing kind of a temporary uh, thing there, and so I, I was an adjunct professor there and was the representative of the biology department's ethical arm. So I, I learned a lot and actually designed a medical ethics course for them as part of my contribution. And, okay. and, and this, coupled with you know, the, the pharmaceutical experience, is what allowed me to write the book Death by Regulation, how we were robbed of a golden age of health and how we can reclaim it. Because what's happened is those regulations have actually, instead of protecting us, have actually done just the opposite. Right. I think uh, more regulation just creates more problems, right? As we can see in today's world of COVID, of course, you wrote that book several years before COVID was even a thing. Yes. <laughs> Dr. Rupert, uh, you know, I want this to be the last conversation I ever have about COVID, but I think that's going to continue for the next six months or 12 months, who knows. Sure. But I, th I thought that you would be more than qualified to, to spend a, a couple minutes to talk about the state of the world right now because, uh, because of your background and, and just your, your experience in, in, in the healthcare industry. Generally speaking, uh, you know, we, we hear a lot of fear, we hear a lot of doubt and a lot of worry. But uh, I remember back when, uh, when COVID was first getting mentioned in the news, I, I heard a little bit about it in uh, coming from China. There were some strange things I heard some of the podcasts were talking about. Mm -hmm. And then there was a controversy of it starting to come to the United States. At that point, you know, I was, wasn't thinking anything about COVID. I was just like, okay, there's something going around. We've seen lots of different types of viruses and, and things around like H1N1 and SARS. And every couple of years, it seems like something comes around. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, when, when COVID started hitting the shores of America, I'm thinking this is just another one of those things. 
in fact, at the time, I remember Dr. Paul said it, that this was a hoax. And then I heard Dr. Drew Prinsky saying, well, people are starting to overreact. And this was back in maybe the end of February and early March. And we've seen the world take a huge swing in the other direction. Maybe ethics would be a, bring, a good conversation to bring up with this. Yes, yes, actually. I haven't seen this level of censorship of information ever in the United States, for one. Uh, so there's obviously some kind of agenda going. And, you know, I mean, we can, we can talk and speculate about that. But the, the bottom line is there's been so much censorship. Our economy has been shut down. And really, uh, the rates of deaths that are coming out of the CDC right now uh, are like 0.26%. It's mostly in the elderly category, uh, especially people who have comorbidities. And actually, <laughs> um, some colleagues of mine and I put out a paper suggesting that high homocysteine levels are really uh, a good indicator of how, how um, I guess you could say, susceptible that you might be to having really bad effects with COVID. And that's something you can easily measure in your you know, doctor can take some blood and measure that. And if your homocysteine's high, there's some easy ways to bring it down uh, with vitamin B12 and folic acid, for example. And of course, what's happened is we've seen that the people who survive COVID well, even if they're elderly, have usually higher than average vitamin D levels, for example. So it's good to be out in the sun, it may be good to take a supplement, uh, you know, and of course, zinc has been implicated in helping with COVID, especially when coupled with hydroxychloroquine, which kind of opens the cell to that. So there's a lot of, a lot of information out there suggesting that there are things we can do to help prevent a lethal effect. Um, there are some common hormones like melatonin, which you can buy over the counter that help block that. So there, there are many things that one can do to help their innate immunity, especially if there's some reason to think that you've been weakened by something else like heart disease, cancer, diabetes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in your experience as a research scientist, you've used the scientific method a few times, right? Yes. <laughs> why, why does it seem like in today's world, the scientific method is either not taught anymore or not used? Because, you know, people use the phrase, you have to trust the science. And yes. what, is that, what does that mean exactly? Well, actually, you know, it's really hard for a layperson to trust the science because uh, there's... There's so much contradictory information out there, in the, even in the scientific literature. And this is not unusual in the first um, go around, if you will, with a new virus or a new disease. So it's not easy for a layperson, especially, to focus on what they need to do in order to be healthy, unfortunately. And what the science is showing now is that instead of this being an extremely lethal disease, it's only lethal to a subgroup of the population. Mm -hmm. And those are the people, of course, who need to be very careful. Um, and if they are, and, you know, and, and, and I remember when I was a child, for example, this is way before the measles vaccine, if a woman had uh, had a pregnancy and she hadn't had measles or mumps, you know, she did not go out much. Mm -hmm. And she wore a mask, <laughs> if she did, oftentimes. And, and the reason is, of course, that you don't want to get something like that when you're carrying uh, a baby in your womb because they are very adversely affected. So similarly, 
what we probably should have done in retrospect is you know suggested that those who have these comorbidities as we call them diabetes heart disease cancer should be the ones who stay at home but the rest of the people if they go out um, and keep the economy going it's probably going to be a net benefit and the reason is a lot of people are dying at home that didn't need to die because they're afraid to go to the hospital and get covid mm -hmm. and and the big the big um category here are people who get a heart attack at home and don't go into the hospital quickly enough there's been something like depending on again which study you look at some somewhere in the neighborhood of 28 to 32 percent increase in those deaths since cardiovascular disease and heart attacks are part of the number one killer that means that this lockdown is actually exacerbating uh, the deaths of people who normally would not die. So, you know, there's a trade-off here between shutting the economy down, which is going to cause a lot of deaths just because poverty does in general, and uh, there's going to be more suicides. That's already started to be uh, coming out in the medical literature, which I try to follow. <laughs> and, and so what's, what's happening is we've probably made some bad choices about locking down the whole economy. Sure, and I definitely want to talk about the ethics of the situation uh, in, in a couple of minutes, but uh, I want to focus on just some of the things you mentioned right before. Obviously, you know, without being a scientist or a doctor myself, I, I can only rely on the things my mom and my grandmother used to tell me. Like today in Illinois, it's actually cold and rainy outside. And common consensus would say, don't go outside without a coat, a raincoat, an umbrella, and a hat, and things like that to just boost your immune system so you don't get sick. Mm -hmm. Right. And of course, we've always heard take your vitamins, right? Or, yeah. or, or eat better, right? How, how can people have uh, now relying more on pharmaceuticals and more on just going to the doctor than just some of the common sense things that we used to talk about years ago? Well, you know, we mentioned the 1962 Kefauver for Harris amendments earlier. Those amendments really did a lot of things. And the, one of the things they did was shifted our medical paradigm from prevention. To treatment. So prevention is kind of poo-poo today in the medical community to a very large extent, which is really bad because I was in research when we didn't have all this genetic manipulation, right? And mm -hmm. our rats were healthy. And the reason <laughs> they were is we titrated their vitamins and their nutrients so they would be perfectly healthy. And then we didn't have any disease models. So to create those disease models, what we did is we started taking away their vitamins. <laughs> mm. And when we did that, uh, for example, I, I was in liver disease. Uh, when we took away their choline, which is a B vitamin, they got uh, um, a liver disease very similar to alcoholic liver disease in people. And that's because alcohol depletes choline in the body when your body detoxifies it. So you could actually produce the something very similar to the diseases we see in people by simply taking away vitamins. So in research, all of us researchers were like taking vitamins, exercising, not smoking. And the medical doctors who really didn't see this firsthand like we did, didn't necessarily take all those precautions. So it was kind of easy to tell if someone was in research, you know, animal research or clinical research. <laughs> because that's how we made our animals sick. And so we knew optimal nutrition is what can really help prevent disease. It's not going to be perfect, but it's certainly going to be a major factor. Mm, 
Absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny because I just came back from a conference with an organization uh, for business. And one of the general speakers there was actually telling the story of germ theory. And uh, he, he went back to a pre-Civil War era. Mm-hmm. I think it was pre, maybe it was, a little, maybe it was after, but sometime in the, in the 19th century. And he was telling a story about how uh, the doctors would deliver babies on one floor of a hospital and they would have a 10% uh, fatality rate among the mothers. But right above and on, on the floor above them, they had the, the midwives who, uh, who delivered babies and they had a very low, maybe one to 2% fatality. And for the right. longest time, they didn't, uh, they didn't realize what was going on. It was, it was about germ theory, right? And mm-hmm. the, the moral of the story was that certain people in the pharmaceutical industry, they had this paradigm, right? They, they didn't realize that when they were actually uh, playing with the cadavers and studying the dead bodies and doing surgeries, they weren't washing their hands and then they were yes. going to deliver the babies. But for four or five years, they were, they were like the guy who discovered germ theory, he was silenced. He was kept right. out of uh, conversation That's and, right. uh, because of right. the paradigm of the pharmaceutical industry. Well, I think it was more than four or five years, but it wasn't just the industry. I, I think people just didn't believe in germ theory, you know. So, in, instead of doing the simple technique of just washing your hands before you did a surgery, or you delivered babies, uh, you know, they didn't do that. And of course, they their patients suffered for that. Once, of course, it was realized, then that became, <laughs> you know, an important regimen in surgery. Sure, and I'm, I'm just wondering if. Uh... You know, I don't know if it was a conspiracy back then. I hate using that word conspiracy, right? You put my tinfoil hat on. But when conversation and, and news and, and studies are suppressed from, from the general population, that, that seems very unethical to me. Yes, it is. And I'm actually shocked at the level of suppression that we've seen, uh, especially among the media giants. I mean, I, I remember back before they were there, you know, because, of course, I'm older. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, it's it's really it's really sad because you know on on one hand you want private companies to be able to handle their company the way they want to, but the thing is in our society today a, a lot of companies get big because they cater to the politicians mm-hmm. who are able to make regulations that allow them to grow big and and be part of I guess I'll say a media cartel, not necessarily a monopoly per se, and that's what's happened and now the sponsors of those companies and of course the politicians who want to give out favors in a certain way can manipulate all that you know it's, it's moving towards almost a fascist model i guess mm-hmm. you could say mm-hmm. yeah so we're fighting a never-ending battle of uh, censorship on on media and of course not knowing which doctor to trust so that whole thing about trusting the science goes out the window right it's very hard for a lay person to to really um get a great handle on this. Actually, it was hard in the beginning, I think, for scientists to get a great handle on this and medical doctors. But, you know, we've learned a lot since COVID started. And now I think we're in a position where, let's see, we'll always lose some people. I just, it's just the way it is when you're already have these comorbidities and you get sick again, right? That's one of the, one of the ways that you can die when you get older. But you know, I think we're doing much better than we did. You know, we were putting everybody on ventilators for a while. Then we realized, wait a minute, this is not standard pneumonia. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is something a little different. We need to handle it differently. And now we are. And 
from where I'm sitting, I think we're going to be much more successful in treating COVID than we will in preventing it with a vaccine, only because, um, you know, you have to be immunocompetent in order to even make the vaccine work. So like if your body can't, can't produce the appropriate immune response to a vaccine, it's not going to help you. And that's why we have these measles outbreak with children who have been vaccinated getting measles because there are many among our population who are not immunocompetent. Mm -hmm. So they kept calling this coronavirus a novel virus. And I'm not sure exactly what that means because in my studies, a coronavirus uh, it can also be a, a common cold. And, and that kind of thing has been around for 7,000 years. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're speaking to a layperson such as myself, from a, from a, from a medical background, what, what do we know so far about COVID-19? I mean, what, what is the truth in, in, in the basic terms of it? Well, there's a lot of, um, you know, the, the, presumably the sequence uh, of the, of the RNA fragment that's in the, um, which is a type of genetic material, <laughs> um, has been sequenced. But I, I've heard conflicting things, and, and I'm not a geneticist. I have not researched this, although I probably could. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I haven't, I, I haven't, I'm not familiar with the techniques that they use today so much, but my understanding is in some cases, these are fragments. And then they kind of put the structure together from fragments, which may or may not be the ideal way to do it. So, but we do have some structure information, which is really good because <laughs> that tells us some things. Um, we've had some scientists say that this coronavirus looks like it might've been engineered in a lab. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly there was such a lab in China, in the area where the coronavirus is suspected to have come from. So that is a possibility. I don't think we've had enough work to know for sure if that's the case. And any virus can be novel simply because they mutate all the time. So, you know, so, so if you actually looked at the human body, my suspicion is that you'd find many, many hundreds of viruses uh, that are different from your neighbors mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to some extent. You know, in other words, it might be the same class of viruses, but might the genetic component in it might be tweaked a little. So I, I think for a lay person, it's not something I'd really concern myself with because the real question is, do we know how to treat it? That's really the question. And uh, the good news is that we have learned a lot in the last few months and we have, a lot of options, not just to treat, I think, but to prevent, you know, mm. staying healthy is the best, you know, the best way to avoid a problem. And by staying healthy, I don't just mean, you know, um, making sure that, you know, you aren't in the hospital. I mean, trying to get optimal health, not just, you know, so-so health. So, you know, if you're overweight, have high blood sugar or pre-diabetic or diabetic, have high blood pressure, all those things may need to be taken care of so that if you do get COVID, then you know, you're gonna be in a much better position. And of course, most people below the age of 70 will survive, 99, something like that percent of them will survive. Yeah, so in my opinion, you know, COVID doesn't seem to be any worse than any other thing that the human condition has ever faced. Uh, I mean, yeah. people with pre 
preconditions and uh, comorbidities, they're still at high risk, the same as they've ever been before. And so why all this nonsense? Why, why, why is this such a big story this year? I mean, the, the word pandemic is scary to so many people. And yes. the, the WHO is coming out and saying this is not even a, a pandemic. It doesn't even meet the, the criteria for a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that, that's a big part of it. When we were first alerted to this, we, we were having projections that, you know, 3% of the population or something would, would be... Uh, you know, would have serious consequences, including death, but that's not turned out to be the case. It's turned out to be a little closer to a flu, um, a, a flu virus in the sense of the number of people who um, will die if we do the proper things. And our problem back in the beginning is we didn't know what the proper things were. We treated it as if it were a flu-like pneumonia, for example, and, and used ventilators and things that were not helpful or as helpful as they were in, say, a regular flu virus pneumonia. But now we know better. So now our ability to treat has really increased. So at the beginning, if we thought that it was like a flu-like pneumonia type of thing, mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm just curious because there's a confusion going around around these words called being symptomatic asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic. Okay. And when they first started talking about COVID-19, they started saying that, well, you can be pre-symptomatic or it can be dormant for 14 days. And I have never heard of the flu or any other kind of virus acting that way. So can you- Well, see, this we've never studied it that way either, if you really think about it. I mean, we have not brought to bear the level of scientific scrutiny in quite the same way. We- there are things we don't know about the flu virus, just the common flu virus, right? And, and now we're learning these things about COVID and all of a sudden we're saying, well, isn't that different than the regular flu virus? Well, in some cases, but in other cases, we don't know because we, we, haven't, we haven't given the flu virus, the you know, regular winter flu virus, the same scrutiny. Mm. So that, that's again why it's hard for a lay person to know. In fact, even myself, um, I, you know, that's not my... Uh, my expertise, so to speak, I could do the research and probably figure sure, it out. Sure. <laughs> but uh, you know, that's there's a lot of unknowns going on here. Nice. Still, because we, it's unknown with the flu virus too, right? Right. Well, science, as we know, is a continual study, right? And and so yeah. that's why I think it's important that we we let all opinions, all uh, evidence come to fruition. So uh, right. not only doctors can make informed. To, uh, you know, decisions, but uh, so can regular average people be like, okay, I'm hearing this information from this doctor. What does this other doctor have to say and, and use our judgment in that regard? Yes. Yes. And I would say that the, the thing, if, if you're afraid of COVID, the best thing you can do is stay healthy and, you know, get optimal health, not just, okay, the doctor says I don't need to take any drugs this year. <laughs> you know, make sure your blood pressure is good. Make sure your blood sugar is good. These are things you can control yourself. Make sure your weight is good. <laughs> you know, this is all under your control. Take your supplements, you know, take some, some vitamin D, get out in the sun too, because taking supplement vitamin D and the sun's vitamin D is not necessarily the same thing. So do both. Sure, absolutely. So what do you think this uh, idea of social distancing came about? I mean, is that effective at all? Because it seems like it causes more problems than we, than we really hoped it would. Yeah, well, first of all, you have to remember that even when 
people are living together, like say a family member got COVID, not everyone will get it, or at least not everyone will get it and, and have symptoms, you know, have, a, have the full-blown what we call the disease. So why is that? Well, obviously, some people have a natural immunity, which might mean their immune system is very effective. It might simply mean that maybe, maybe this type of virus has been around for a while and immunity has been, has been acquired. You know, there are a lot of ways that could come about. So then when you talk about social distancing, uh, is it helpful? Well, you know, to some extent it may be, but if people can live together and not get it, um, I think there are factors that are probably much more important. Now, if you're sit sitting next to somebody and they sneeze on you, yeah, that's a bad thing. <laughs> you know, but as far as six feet or 12 feet or 10 feet, does, does it make a difference? You know, I, I've, seen, I've seen conflicting studies on this. So I guess maybe the jury's still out, but it seems to me that the real, how can I say it? If you're, if you're healthy, the chances are very low that you're going to have a serious um, encounter, I guess I should say, with COVID. So you mentioned earlier, you know, working with the FDA, and of course, I'm going to throw in the USDA involved with that. Uh, they are in the business of controlling the pharmaceutical industry, which has become a behemoth, not just in the United States, but really worldwide. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, a common libertarian joke is all the alphabet agencies, right? So you can throw the FDA in there as well. Do, do you see the FDA? Um, are they actually, well, to put it frankly, are they doing good work or are they just frustrating the problem more, what would you say? Well, it, you know, I think probably before 1962, uh, I would give them higher marks. But what's happened since 62, one of the things the 62 amendments did is it made somebody at the FDA sign off on the drug approval. Before that, the pharmaceutical companies would send their information to the FDA, and if um, six months passed and the FDA didn't object, then you could market your drug. So generally, you know, people waited seven months and then marketed their drug. Mm -hmm. Well, when you have to sign on the dotted line and you're at the FDA, you know that every drug has side effects of some sort. And one day, a drug that you approve is going to have side effects that come to the attention of the American public and Congress is gonna beat up on you because their voter block is beating up on them and saying, why isn't the FDA protecting us? Well, of course, the reason the FDA isn't protecting us is that we don't know enough science to predict from animal studies and a small group of humans every side effect. So yes, these drugs are going to uh, be problematic on occasion. So what the FDA started to do is demanding more and more and more studies to give you an example of how many more, before the 62 amendments, it took about four years for a drug to go from the lab bench to the marketplace once it was decided that the company wanted to market it. Um, today, it takes between 10 and 12 years, and the peak was about 14 years. And then, to shorten that time, what happened is the FDA started charging the pharmaceutical firms user fees what they call user fees mm. which started out at a hundred thousand dollars a drug they're now something like 2.7 million dollars per drug in other words the people who are funding the part of the fda that approves drugs 
are actually being paid now. More than half their salary is coming from the pharmaceutical industry. And so what's happened, for example, in the Vioxx case, which was probably the biggest drug disaster that ever hit the US, it was, there was some evidence already that Vioxx was causing heart attacks. In fact, one of the FDA examiners said, we cannot put this, we cannot approve this and put it on the market and was told, <clears throat> excuse me, by a superior, our client is the pharmaceutical industry. Mm. Notice he didn't say the American public, didn't say right, Congress, right. <clears throat> because now the pharmaceutical industry is paying, paying their freight, so to speak. So, of course, the, the FDA is going to look at things that way. And that's very scary because now, you know, the FDA is going to side more with the pharmaceutical industry. In other words, the pharmaceutical industry has now co-opted the FDA to a large extent. Now, does that mean that that's unethical? Well, it is a big conflict of interest. In fact, it's such a big conflict of interest, it would not be tolerated if it were in the private sector. Mm. And this is, but this is true really for all government, if you think about it. You know, the politicians get their campaign money from lobbyists who represent industries that expect to pay off, you know, when these people get elected. They expect legislation to be in their favor. So this is not, quote, unusual, but it's very unethical the way that we have our government set up and, and how we have, um, you know, it's, it's unethical, really, for government to be able to do things that the average person can't you know and that's the whole problem with government is government is allowed to make laws that favor one company for example over another and they're they profit from it they meaning the politicians or the government so you know that that would be a huge conflict of interest in, in the private industry it would not be it would not be tolerated so, I mean, we could talk about the, the government being the source of problems like any good libertarian would do. But in today's world, it seems like the government is not even the biggest, most threatening entity out there. It seems like some of these big technology companies like Twitter and Google and all these ones who are suppressing stories of other drugs out there. I mean, like hydroxychloroquine. Um, yeah been around for 60 or so years, but you know, now I think the pharmaceutical company is probably pushing their drug or their vaccine, but why are big tech companies like shutting that down? What's going on with that? Well, you know, that's a good question. And in some cases, I think that they probably have um, uh, an advertising base from the pharmaceutical companies or other companies. It's, it's very easy to, it's very easy to get such an advertising base. And that would be my supposition. But remember, too, that corporations themselves are creatures of government. Mm -hmm. So we said the government could do things that other individuals could not. So they can take actions that hurt other people. For example, if an FDA examiner doesn't approve a drug and you beg for it and you can't get it because the FDA hasn't approved it, they don't go to jail if it could have saved your life. But if a doctor doesn't prescribe a drug, that could save your life. He could go to jail or she could go to jail. Mm. So you see, we have different standards for government. And, and this is an important thing because that's partly why our government has, is able to be bought. And of course, one of the things they bought when they did the corporate structure was a liability that's limited to the corporate assets. So for example, if a corporation harms you or your family, 
and you want to sue, well, the most you can get is what's in the corporate framework. And if it's not there, you cannot, you know, it doesn't translate to liability against the owners. This is a concept that was not always around. And actually, it's a very interesting one because it's turned owners into stockholders and the stockholders, it, for them, it's like a gambling game in, in Vegas, you know, buying stocks and selling stocks. And, and most investors don't really take care to look at the management of a company and make sure that management isn't doing bad things because they have no liability, right? Mm, but the, right. the stockholders have no real liability. It's just what they risk in buying the stock. So this is, this is another part of the, the problem is corporations have, have assumed part of the sovereign immunity cloak of government. And that coupled with the fact that government can make regulations that favor one company over the other or one sector over the other, you know, means that we have a lot of buying and selling of favors. Right, exactly. And one of the libertarians' strong uh, ideologies is this idea of self-ownership. In other words, we own our bodies, right? Mm -hmm. And you can have a long conversation about whether uh, you know, harmful drugs are good to put into your body or not. But I, I was interested in, in talking about the right to try different types of medicines. Yes. Right? Yes. Right. Well, right to try initially was a lawsuit, believe it or not. Okay. Um, so, you know, back in the days when I was working in AIDS research, the AIDS patients quickly realized they could not wait 14 years for a new drug to be put on the market. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they hired black market chemists to make the drugs that we were testing in the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. And they yeah. distributed them throughout the AIDS community. I, I think in actually a pretty reasonably safe way. And um, by the time the FDA actually gave the pharmaceutical companies permission to test in humans, every AIDS patient in the country that wanted our drugs had already had them and were resistant. Mm. So we had to wait for new people to be diagnosed. The cancer patients did not want to go through that illegal process, and they weren't as tight a community as the AIDS patients were. So they sued, and they sued the FDA for the right to use unapproved drugs to treat their cancers. And initially the court said, yeah, of course, that's your right as an American citizen. And then the FDA said, reconsider that please. <laughs> and the courts did. <laughs> and so they, the courts ruled in the US that an American does not have the right to save their life with an unapproved drug. And basically that lawsuit was structured very much like current right to try, which passed in several states as statewide initiatives. And then of course, Trump got very excited about it and passed it nationally. The problem, a company that is approached by an individual who says, hey, I've got this cancer, I've got this other problem, I'd like to try your drug, it's not yet FDA approved. Uh, that company is going to be very hesitant to give that drug, even if the law allows the patient to pay for it. Why? Because they know the FDA is going to be upset with them if they do that. And yeah. upset means they can delay their approval and let another company's similar drug get to the market first. Whoever is first to the market gets 90% of the market. So that's a pretty big incentive not to share drugs with patients. And so Right to Try has been very successful in a couple cases, but it's a hard sell 
So in theory, we can negotiate with the drug companies and get those drugs, but in fact, drug companies are very, very hesitant to do that. And there are some other reasons too why they might not want to give a patient drug. You know, usually in the, especially in early development, it's, it's hard for a company to manufacture as much drug as they need for anything but their clinical trials. Okay. You know, they haven't scaled up a big line to manufacture because they don't know if the drug's going to get approved or not, or if it's going to work or not. So there, there are several factors that really limit that. Now, what will be more successful, I think, if it's passed is Heartland's Free to Choose Medicine. Heartland is a libertarian nonprofit based out of Chicago. And the Free to Choose Medicine plan, um, in short, creates a second track so that once the safety testing has been done in humans, the, the, you know, the first phase of safety testing, and I think it was one phase two study, they can choose, manufacturers could choose to go to the right to try track. They never have to get FDA approval. They can sell directly whenever they feel that their drug is ready. And this is actually, if it actually passed, it would probably be a better way to allow patients access because, um, like I said, once they get through the safety testing, they don't have to necessarily get their drug approved by the FDA. And that, that would take some of this pressure off, I think, for companies to be willing to go ahead at an earlier stage than the FDA would normally approve. And you have to realize that there are organizations, citizen organizations like the Abigail Alliance, that reviews a lot of the data that the pharmaceutical companies have. And in 40 different cases, the Abigail Alliance has urged the FDA to approve a cancer drug two years before the FDA actually did it. Hmm. In other words, they picked the winners and haven't been wrong. So if a, if a citizen group could do that, you know that the FDA is dragging its feet probably to protect itself with more and more studies. So if Congress uh, gets called uh, by their constituents and, and people complain about a side effect that, you know, their head isn't going to be on the chopping block. <laughs> That's the one thing that Congress does better than anything else is save their own face, right? <laughs> it's, it's interesting because um, this is such a political issue now. I mean, yeah, we have all these government agencies and pharmaceutical companies, and they're going to do their thing. But just today in 2020, I mean, we have a pandemic. And again, I don't want to sit there and put a conspiracy head on saying that, uh, you know, this is all because of the election, because obviously this is a worldwide phenomenon. Yes. But here in the United States, it's, it's absolutely political. It just blows my mind how, how, depending on who you want to vote for, is how you're going to feel about what's going on. Yes, yes. I, I mean, it's, it's been very interesting how Trump's uh, eagerness to endorse uh, hydroxychloroquine, for example, as a treatment has, has, has created an issue for him in the sense that the Democrats, you know, come down on him for that. But in fact, it's actually, if used properly at the right dose with zinc, uh, it's actually has, you know, some, some effectiveness. So like I said, treatments, it, time will tell, you know, on all this, but if it's properly used, it's probably going to give a benefit because it's a zinc ionophore. It helps zinc get into the cells mm -hmm. and zinc will kill the virus. So that's, that's what the logic behind all that is. 
Sure. Now, have you had a chance to, to do any traveling or any, uh, any deep studying about what's going on in some of the other countries in regard to this, uh, this virus as compared to what's going on in America? Well, I haven't traveled, uh, but, you know, like Sweden's doing it very differently. They, they pretty much kept things open. I think they did protect the elderly and ask them to stay home and had people deliver food to them and things like that. But now they're actually even saying, hey, the, the staying at home stuff has got its own side effects and we are going to open up more. And what's very interesting in Sweden is, yes, their cases are increasing, but their death rate is going down still, uh, you know, and their, their um, ICU beds are, are not occupied because, you know, there's, like I said, there's trade-offs to the lockdown, you know, so it, there may be some prevention due to them, but there's also a price tag in lives. Then uh, we talked about heart attacks earlier being probably one of the biggest. And of course, companionship is very important. I would say even more so to those who are getting close to the end of their lives, if they have family, they're going to want to see them. Mm -hmm. And being denied that can have a very negative impact on your health. So I think Sweden probably found, as, as far as I can see, probably one of the countries that found one of the better ways to handle the pandemic. I like how you brought up mindset because I think that is probably the most important thing for any situation in our life, how we think and how we feel. And, and uh, I guess the positive versus negative energy that flow through us will help us uh, determine whether, you know, we have a good outcome or not. I, I remember Tom Woods uh, just recently, he came out with uh, his fact-free uh, hysteria uh, talk that he gave at uh, Jekyll Island. Did you get a chance to listen to that talk? I didn't, but I, I, I've heard, I mean, I've met Tom very many times, heard him speak. Yeah, I really do like his stuff. So, Well, he's been remarkable in just tracking the, the what he calls a voodoo that's going on. <laughs> he says that's probably the real pandemic is just the nonsense, uh, the nonsensical uh, reaction that people are having. And, and, and you mentioned some of the, the, the consequences of, uh, not being able to go to the doctor, like, you know, not being able yeah. to check to see if you have heart disease or if you're going to have a heart attack or, or anything else. People are literally putting off treatments for conditions because they're scared of COVID. That's right. That's right. And, and like you were saying earlier, not being able to interact with other people, especially for the elderly, it's a very difficult thing. You know, minds, that's why we have a placebo effect. That's why we do placebo-controlled trials. We know that the mind has an impact on our body. And it's too bad we haven't looked at that a little more closely because, you know, the placebo effect can be quite large. You know, some the averages that you usually hear are somewhere in the neighborhood of 30%. You know, it's a double digit in most cases. Mm -hmm. So it's an important factor. What about some of the other things that make life enjoyable? I mean, be, not being able to go to work could put stress on us, right? And obviously we see a lot of depression because of just not being able to go to work and, and poverty going up around the world. But some of the simple things like just going to parties with your friends or going to a, a concert, you know, seeing a live band, um, right. you know, not being able to go to the church. What kind of dramatic effect is that really having on the community? Yeah, well, especially for people who are very gregarious. We all differ in that, of course. As, as a writer, I've spent a lot of time alone because writing is a solitary uh, activity for the most part. And, mm -hmm. and so um, I'm more used to that. But I have friends that are very gregarious, and it's been extremely hard on them not to be able to congregate. 
and I would say for, for people who, for example, part of their social life is, is going to their church, uh, you know, that's been a very big part of their life and, and not to be able to mix with like-minded people, it's very tough. Yeah, that's why part of me will say that uh, the reason why they instilled the face masks and the social distancing is because they just don't want people to, to gather together because when people gather together, they come up with ideas that probably aren't in line with what the government wants to do, right? So. Yeah, well, and, and some of that, but of course, the mask stuff too. I mean, probably if you're healthy, the mask is probably a net detriment just because there are problems with the mask. I mean, they leak too. So they're, they're not like a hundred percent. I've seen studies all over the map on this. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting how it's, it's interesting to me how different the science is on, on the masks, but you know, it's, it's pretty clear that if it's not fitting well, it's not going to, uh, it's not going to prevent things from going from you to other people. And those masks are not meant for small particles like viral particles, unless, you know, unless they're carried in, in a larger particle, like a larger water droplet or something, you know, that's, they're going to, they're going to be able to get through to you. So, you know, the current masks, they're just not designed to be antiviral in the way that we would hope. You know, it's, I've been very vocal about not wearing a mask and I probably made more enemies than I needed to. I, I just want to be, a, you know, I want to be a nice, sociable person living in this world. But everywhere you go, people are, are, you know, looking at you funny if you don't have a mask, like, you know, you're trying to kill them. My wife is a, uh, a waitress and she mm -hmm. says she'll go to the restaurant and she is forced to wear a mask, but the, the customers can sit down without a, wear a mask. But they come up to her like she's going to kill them because, you know. <laughs> It's well, just craziness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus, you know, if you have a mask that's fitting tight, you're going to be breathing your own carbon dioxide, uh, which is not necessarily a good thing. So, you know, there, like I said, there's downsides to the masks. And, and so you really, you, you know, you need to make an informed decision, of course, if you want to wear one. Of course, of course. So let's end this on a positive note. Sure. There's all kinds of scary things out there and just ridiculousness out there. But where do we go from now, from here? Uh, let me just start with this, this potentially scary story. My wife, like I said, she was a waitress. And for two months, she was laid off when COVID first hit. And we were in a situation where that didn't really affect us too bad financially. But now, because of fall, you know, our governor has decided to you know, instill or degrade us one level of, uh, of the phase. So now we're going back to not being able to eat inside of restaurants in the middle yeah. of winter. They're gonna, so she's potentially going to be losing her job again. Mm -hmm. And she's getting angry along with a lot of her other friends who work at restaurants and, and owners of restaurants. And they are literally trying to go on strike because they, they don't want to take this anymore. Yeah. Uh, but the common fear has been that, you know, if we don't comply to what the health regulators are saying they're going to come take our, our licenses away and close us down. Yeah. Is, is, there a, is there a way that we can act as a, as a citizenry to, to not let that happen? Well, you know, it's a matter of numbers, really, if you think about it. If, if enough of us protest in whatever way we feel is appropriate, uh, you know, there's not much the politicians can do. There's more of us than them. You know, so the, the problem, I think, has been that a lot of people are so frightened by the virus that they'll do whatever they're told to do 
in order to prevent it. But you know, the numbers are right out there. If, if the layperson wants to take anything away in terms of lessons from COVID, the lessons are, if you're under 70 and you have good health, you know, your chances of dying are very, very slim. They're, you know, they're, they're maybe 0.1%, maybe. Slow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's probably less than the flu, the, the normal flu. You know, if you have comorbidities or if you aren't in really good health, then get yourself in good health to the extent that you can. Take supplements, get some exercise, lose weight, control your blood pressure, control your blood glucose. Oh, and one thing I didn't mention but is important. Take some fish oil, some high quality fish oil. I personally like to get fish oil either from the Life Extension Foundation or from Barry Sears um, and the zonediet.com because they have very purified fish oil. And one of the things you were mentioning when you were talking about what our mothers and grandmothers used to tell us, back in the olden days, they took the cod liver oil because mm -hmm. it really helped, right? So today, fish oil, is a very important thing to take. It will help boost your immunity and keep you healthy and in a number of other ways that we, we don't have time to talk about. But the good news is there's a lot you can do, whether or not there's a lockdown, to keep yourself healthy. And the other thing, of course, is that if we all object, there's more of us than them in terms of the politicians. And, and really, there's a limited amount that they can do to keep us in check if we work in you know, in unity on that. So you feel that if we worked in unity and we did the things our mothers and grandmothers did and we rise above these uh, tyrannical uh, government officials trying to scare everybody, then there is a way to heal this world that we're living in right now, right? Oh, yes. Yes, we have it in our hands. Yes. I, I know we feel helpless and powerless because <laughs> that's the way government makes us feel because of course they do have more power and to some extent they can do things we can't we get thrown in jail for but the thing is we the reason we get caught in the trap is because we often think to ourselves well it's okay if the government doesn't we need to get out of that mindset because see mm -hmm. that's how they've trained us to to acquiesce you know they're just people like us, right? <laughs> and Absolutely. in many cases, they are not as educated as we are. When I ran uh, as a libertarian candidate, even though I didn't have a prayer of winning, uh, you know, people would come up and say, well, you're the only candidate that's making sense, you know, because you answer the questions, you know, and, and a lot of the politicians today, you know, as we talked about earlier, are in it for themselves, right? They're going to profit from, uh, the favors that they sell. So uh, for those of you who might want to learn more about that in a fun way, I really like the movie, The Distinguished Gentleman, which is mm. now about 30 years old, I think, with Eddie sure. Murphy. I think it was Eddie Murphy, wasn't it? Yeah. I um, believe so. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's, he's basically a con guy that realizes the biggest con is the government. <laughs> and so you can kind of and get yourself some entertainment while you're back home because you can't go to work there or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and learn something about what government really is because that's knowledge is power. And, and once you have that knowledge, then uh, even just having it, even if you don't act on it, it elevates your consciousness. And that, I also believe, is a very healthy thing to do.
Nice, nice. Well, I was told on my last interview that I didn't ask this question before we wrapped up, and it's been something I, I've been struggling with just asking, but it is some branding I'm going to do. So, Dr. Root, would you say that you are Invictus? Oh, yes. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So, before I let you go, uh, is there anything else that you want to plug? Uh, I know you have a couple of books you've mentioned, but uh, anything that you're currently involved in that uh, you want people to be aware of? Yes, yes. I, I, I'm, I currently chair an organization known as Liberty International. It's a nonprofit liberty organization. It used to be called the International Society for Individual Liberty. Our acronym, though, was ISIL, and we got hacked so much because people thought we were anti-freedom instead of pro-freedom. Oh, no. <laughs> change our name, yes. But, um, you know, we do a lot of great work. Um, I hope that you'll check our website. Um, Liberty, I-N-T-L, hyphen, dot org. I'm sorry, liberty, hyphen, I-N-T-L, dot org. And if you want to know more about me, you can go to my website, ruart.com, and that's R-U-W-A-R-T.com. I have on the lower right-hand part of the page the links to all my social media. And, of course, you can always send me an email through my website. Well, I want to thank you very much for that. You've been very pleasant to talk to and very informative uh, it's been a while since I've had uh, uh, somebody who's an expert that can, uh, can talk about what the situation, because normally it's just me blabbing my mouth and I don't know much of anything. So I just talk to people like you. <laughs> what you're doing is important because, you know, getting the word out is, is really important. So, Well, I want to thank you again for coming on and uh, I guess we'll just uh, connect some time down the road. Yes. Yes. And I want to, you know, wish you a good rest of the day and all your listeners too. So. I, and stay healthy, hopefully. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Ruhr. I really appreciate it. I want to thank Dr. Mary Ruhr for coming on my show today. I want to thank all the listeners as well. Remember to subscribe to the Invictus Mind newsletter by texting Invictus to 33777. And come back next week as I will be featuring another great guest and true inspiration to me. Until then, be safe, be free, and stay productive. Peace. Peace.